may be seated. And good morning, I'm Paul Joyner, uh, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, we're so thankful that you're here. Um, if you want to know a little bit more about our church, you can fill out one of those visitor cards in front of you. If you are visiting, we are working our way through the part of Genesis that deals with the story of Jacob. Um, we're calling these the Jacob narratives, the story of the schemer who God transforms into a man who rests. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of those pew Bibles home with you. Genesis chapter 29, starting with verse 31 and then reading all the way through chapter 30, verse 24. This is God's word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again. And bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant, Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave her, him, her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Therefore, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it's is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I've hired you. 
with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because of my servant, my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is God's word. Let's ask his blessing on his word preached. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we come to your word, it is with always with shaky faith. For you have not matured our faith to the degree that we believe your promises as wholeheartedly as we need to. And so pray by your Spirit, who has searched hearts and knows our struggles, meet us where we are at with the all-sufficiency of your word and bring Jesus near. May we hear his voice calling out to us. Maybe some for the very first time today coming to the Savior of sinners and the King of kings. But for all of us, transform us so that we would be a little less like our former selves and a little more like the self that will come in the new heavens and new earth. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably don't have to be around uh, for very long to realize that a lot of our solutions to our problems don't actually solve our problems. Too often our solutions to our problems often create new problems that we were unaware of. The law of unintended consequences. I, I tried to fix it, but I, in the process of fixing it, created this new problem. Now, if you uh, happen to work for my handyman, you know this is true in most of my plumbing endeavors at my house. I thought I could fix it. Please come over and rescue me from myself. Recently, a man in Colorado was pulled over for drunk driving. He's driving erratically, going 52 in a 30 mile an hour zone, and so the police pull him over, and it's never good to drive drunk, and he, of course, realizes this, and so he switches seats with his passenger, who was his dog. And he gets out of the car and tries to convince the officer that while he was drunk, he wasn't actually the one who was driving. And the officer doesn't buy his plea and realizes he's drunk, and so he goes to arrest the man, and so he flees all the while. Charges are just piling up against him. Because he just tried to solve his original problem himself. Our solutions usually don't try to solve our problems, especially when it comes to solving the deepest desires of our hearts. 
Alan Ross, a scholar on Genesis, starts his commentary on this section with these words about Jacob and Leah and Rachel. He says, the desire for affectionate approval often leads us down dangerous paths. Unrequited love, lack of recognition, or complete disregard is just too much to endure. One recourse is to pursue love and recognition by any means without regard to the cost in terms of long-range effects. Such the direction, though, is life on an earthly level. It is never the way of faith. Things spiral out of control pretty quickly for Jacob's family in this chapter. Jacob creates a lot of disorder, envy, and disruption by his two wives. But as God always does, he moves his plan of redemption forward and brings beauty out of the ashes. Tolstoy begins um, Anna Karenina with these lines, these famous words. He says this, and setting the tone for what will to come in the book, he says, All happy families resemble one another, but every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. There's only one true way to joy and happiness, but there are a thousand iterations of ways to break our lives apart and to break families apart. Well, each family of Jesus has their own way of being unhappy too. And Jacob nails that plot by creating a ton of drama between his two wives. In the previous chapter, Jacob was duped by his uncle Laban, tricked into marrying his older daughter Leah while Jacob was in love with his younger daughter. In the process, Jacob, the schemer, had been out-schemed by Laban and is now indebted to Laban for seven more years of service in addition to the first seven years he'd gotten. And during this time, Jacob has two wives, and with their four female servants will bear Jacob 11 sons and one daughter. But there's a question that's been lingering in the background all the time that we really haven't gotten to address up until this point. What about this problem of polygamy? Why is it that God's people have multiple wives? And why does God not do something about it? Well, here's the broader context. God's created order is good, and deviation from his created order always leads to massive disruption. This problem is in the patriarchs and our early fathers of the faith from Abraham onward. It shows up in the royal lines of Jesus' own family and the kings of Israel. Why does God not do something about it? One of the reasons is he's just showing the massive disruption that can occur when we deviate from his good design. Here's a truth that you can live by. The proper use of a thing is always tied directly to its intended design. 
If a manufacturer has designed the vehicle to put gasoline in it and you put diesel in it, it won't run. The proper use of a thing is always tied to its intended design. A knife cutting food is designed for that or as a scalpel, designed to bring healing, but take that same tool and use it against its design to murder someone and massive disruption ensues. You know, one of the reasons that it's just not good for us to be self-made, expressive individuals is because that always creates a mess. When we try to write our own stories or craft our own identities, we're assuming that we know what's best for us and that any restraint on us is just holding us back. But listen, restraint to design is always good and freeing. And God's design for the family, for marriage, and the original creation was God gives one man to one wife for life. One man to one wife and just one wife. And one wife to one man and just one man. And he then lays out his equation for intended design. And the two shall become one Flesh, not the four of them as one flesh, not the 16 of them as one flesh, but the two shall become one flesh. So the question then remains, if that's God's good intended design, why does God not do something about this problem immediately amongst the patriarchs of the Old Testament and the kings of Israel? Because God's gracious and slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and at times overlooks sin, but only for a time. I think to understand this particular problem, you even have to go to the words of Jesus when questioned about divorce. He says these words, that's not God's design. But he allows it because of the hardness of your heart. There's a patience with God. But one of the reasons that it's often recorded for us in these ways is that God likes to teach us in other ways as well by showing us how sin plays out. Go against his good design. Try to unshackle ourselves from the restraint of his design. And then he says, let me show you what it leads to. Because this if you haven't noticed, is not the ideal family. In fact, envy and jealousy get planted between these two wives and those seeds will grow for the rest of the book of Genesis. We're introduced to the main characters of Leah and Rachel here in verse 31 of chapter 29. And and the introduction creates a dramatic tension that's going to play out for the rest of this narrative. And Leah is hated by Jacob. While Rachel, the wife that Jacob loves and is smitten with, is barren, both are in destitute positions. So God opens Leah's womb first, and she bears him four sons. 
That makes Rachel jealous. So she lashes out at Jacob. Give me children or I shall die. It seems a little dramatic. But envy and jealousy always create dramatic responses. So Rachel decides that she's going to take things into her own hands. So she gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a surrogate wife. This was a common practice in the world around them. She's borrowing the practices of the world. The custom at that time was common. Your servant could become a secondary wife to your husband. And if she bore children, they'd be your own. And so Rachel schemes and she takes things into her own hands and she gets two sons through another woman. Now, if you think that sounds messed up, it is. And then Leah can't have any more children herself and now she's in a competition with her younger brother, her younger sister. So Leah takes things into her own hands and grabs her servant Zilpah and through Zilpah, she gets two more sons. Well, now Rachel is, is getting more jealous because God opens her, Leah's womb again. This time after purchasing the marital privileges of Jacob with a few mandrakes from the field. And when she buys Jacob's services, she has two more sons herself and then a daughter and finally, after all of the tension and envying and jockeying for position and trying to gain what the two lacked, Leah, the affection of her husband and, and Rachel, the honor of having children, both in destitute positions, after it all settles down, we're left with these words, and God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb and Jacob's favorite son was born to her. And the tension and the family dynamics and the values that Jacob instills and Leah and Rachel instill become the story of dysfunction for the rest of the book of Genesis. These brothers will fight for against each other and seek to destroy the one son of Rachel, Joseph, by first plotting to kill him and then just deciding, let's just dig a hole and sell him into slavery. What began as a fairly good love story, Jacob falling in love with Rachel and being willing to give seven years of his service away as a bride price, now has spun out of control with scheming and plotting and planning and problem solving until the entire family is in complete and utter dis function. Isn't this where most of our scheming and plotting and planning and problem solving tends towards? Because we're just not omniscient, we're not omnipresent, we're not omnipotent. I don't think we really evaluate how foolish it is to take things into our own hands. We get so desperate to solve the great problems before us that we don't stop to to look down at our own hands and think, are these capable of solving this problem? We just immediately go into action. We assume that we know the best way forward, and so we plot and plan to make that happen. And we're assuming we can see all things at all moments and see them correctly. We assume that we're all-knowing, and we assume that we can handle 
all of the contingent circumstances which required us to be all present and all powerful, to manage it all and keep all contingencies aside. And then we realize these hands can't do it and we fall into anxiety and fear because we've looked down and the problem seems so immense and our hands seem so incapable and we keep trying though until exhaustion and confusion and dysfunction arise. But you see, what Jacob has installed as a value in his family without even realizing it. I mean, it's not like he sat down and came up with a 14-year plan for creating the most dysfunctional family you can imagine. Without even realizing it, installing in the value of his family is scheming and envying and self-sufficiency. Because both of these women, again, are lacking in incredible ways. Leah lacks the love of her husband. Rachel lacks the fruit of her womb. Leah lacks love. Rachel lacks honor. Are there two more fundamental cries of our heart than those two? Will you notice me and love me? Will you honor me with dignity? And we're introduced to this in the very first verse. Here, let me tell you about Rachel and Leah. Leah's hated, Rachel's barren. And the rest of the story, the story is about both of them attempting to fill those two voids of their lives with their own version of scheming. And both of them, both of them operate out of their lack to provide for themselves. And as a result, they just are constantly jockeying to fill these holes. Now he'll love me. Did you notice that? Now he'll love me. Now he'll love me. Now he'll love me. Now he'll be, I'll find honor. Now I'll find honor. And that's what creates the competition. We look down at the work of our own hands. We look at our own plotting and scheming. We're always going to see a lack of sufficiency. And that's what creates the competition. There's just not enough resources to go around. So we've got to work to gain them ourselves. And that is what creates envy and jealousy. I mean, how much conflict in our own marriage is born out of the sense that just the gut-wrenching sense, there's not enough dignity for both of us. And so we've got to criticize and put each other down. And when we feel our lack, and we've got to demand that the other person feel responsibility for it. And when they don't feel it, they must pay and bitterness sets in. We look down. We entrust ourselves to our own resources. We're right to feel the lacking in spades. But God is quite the opposite. He abounds and he doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play favorites because in him there is an abundance of love and grace. There are no Leah's in the Lord's house who are unloved and no Rachel's who are dishonored because they can't produce because the Lord abounds in loving kindness. And as the psalmist says, is plentiful in redemption. And the antidote for the strife of envy and jealousy is to gain a practical, the very practical tool of contentment. The opposite of scheming is not not scheming. The opposite of scheming is just to rest in contentment. This is what Jeremiah Burroughs, he calls contentment the rare jewel. 
so seldom found, but when gained is the most precious possession we could have. He defines contentment in this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. See, if God loves me in Christ, I'm lacking nothing. For he poured out his wrath on his son so I can sit all before him. All my debts are paid in full by him through his son who earned for me a righteousness and an inheritance. And if he did that, as Paul reasons, will he not graciously give me all things? And so if I in Christ lack, the lacking itself is the good thing that God's given. And then I can let that, let that settle into your family dynamics. Let that create a culture. Because instead of working and lacking and working and lacking, which turns our relationships into a constant grabbing match, we're now working out of the abundance of God's provision for us, secured by His own Son, that He cannot but demand Himself give to us. And then... Now we can outdo one another in showing honor because I've got no lacking anymore in Christ. I look at my hands, I see lacking. I look at what God has done in Christ and I see an abundance. Now I can give and give and give. Outdoing one another and showing honor. You see, this is what God does. He always brings beauty out of the ashes. Let me rephrase that. Glory out of the ashes. I find that I keep wanting to install as a core assumption in all of our lives this, two truths. One, our parents sinned against us and damaged us. Let's just base not a single person in the room that's not true of. Every single one of us have grown up in some form of dysfunctional families. And then all of us will deform our own children. And so keep entrusting them to the hands of Jesus and do everything we can to keep the trustworthiness of Jesus in front of them all the time in every possible way. How would you like to tell this origin story of your family or even your name? Imagine the guy sitting around the fire having a couple beers and they get to share in their stories. Hey, Naphtali, where'd you get your name? Well, my mom was jealous of my aunt, who was also my stepmom. So stepmom aunt kept getting pregnant by my dad, even though my dad didn't love her. So my mom decided she's going to give her servant to my dad to conceive me. So mom called me wrestling because she wrestled away a child through her cunning. Wait, so you have three moms? A stepmom who was your aunt, a biological mom who was the servant of your actual mom? Yep, you got it. Now, let me tell you about my stepbrother, Issachar. Stepmom aunt called him wages because she hired my dad to sleep with him with some mandrakes from the field because my barren mom thought the mandrakes had a mystical power to make her pregnant. 
Did it work? No. But stepmom aunt ended up getting pregnant by my dad a couple more times. So wait a minute. Did your mom ever have children? Oh, yeah, yeah, Joseph. He's my dad's favorite. But his birth story is the only good one. Mom just finally prayed after all of these years, and God listened and opened her womb, so she called him Ayad. Oh, well, that story seems like it ends well. Not really. We got jealous of Joseph because he was my dad's favorite, so we had a dream that made him look better than us, and we dug a pit and sold him into slavery. Oh, you're right, that story doesn't end well. Well, actually, that's how we ended up in Egypt. God used our jealousy to provide for us seven years of famine. In God's hands, Joseph became so important in Egypt that he saved us from starving to death. And now our family is all back together again. And we love each other and we have forgiven each other. And boy, do I wish my moms were still alive to see this and to see what God has done. Glory from the ashes. That God had promised Abraham that he would multiply his offspring so that they would be like the sand of the seashore, unable to be numbered. And he, he said that while Abraham was old and without child. Through Isaac, that promise gets passed down to one, and the promise gets passed down to Jacob. But now, Amidst all of this dysfunction, God is making that promise come true from the one man and his quite messed up family. Twelve sons are multiplied and these twelve would become the entire tribes of Israel from whom Jesus, God's own son, would come to redeem broken people and broken families from our own self-caused trouble. God always creates beautiful glory from the ashes. Not because there's beauty in the ashes, but because there's beauty in the hands of Jesus. And whatever he touches turns into glory. God is always and only working in one direction. Forward towards redemption. That's the pattern of the resurrection. No matter what mess we make, if you are in Christ, God is at work bringing beauty and glory from all of the ashes of all of the self-destructive behavior of our own scheming. And so give yourself to Jesus. He only works in one direction to create with the power of resurrection life glory out of ashes. And he only works in the most broken and destitute places. That is what is so beautiful about the story of Rachel and Leah. God notices them both. But he notices them for their plight, their weakness, and their lacking. The entire narrative is bookended by these two observations. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And then if you skip all the way down to verse 22 of chapter 30, you'll hear these words. And then God remembered Rachel and listened to her. And she conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my reproach. All of her efforts to take away her reproach and gain honor led to nothing. But when God noticed her plight and moved... 
See, this is the way Jesus works. He cannot but notice the destitute and hopeless. He's drawn to them. More than Jacob was drawn to the beauty of Rachel at the well, Jacob noticed her outward beauty and made him drop everything and dedicate all of his resources that he had available to be with her. But God looks at the inward beauty of brokenness of destitute, of hopelessness that causes Jesus to say, I will drop everything I have and dedicate all of my resources at my disposal to the rescue and reclamation of sinners and the brokenness that they've created of themselves. Burrow makes this last observation when talking about that rare jewel of contentment. God, when he will bring life, brings it out of death. He brings joy out of sorrow. He brings prosperity out of adversity. Yes, and many times brings grace out of sin. That is, makes use of sin to further his grace. It's the way of God to bring good out of evil, not to only to overcome evil, but to make the evil itself work towards his good. Through Christ's death on the cross, God brings the greatest good out of the greatest evil. These hands just seem to lead to all kinds of scheming self-destruction. But the hands of Jesus... And the most destitute places that we feel, even of our own making, brings glory out of the ashes. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table, we are not only wretched sinners, but wrecked sinners. Wrecked by sin, our own plans, our own scheming, our own efforts. We have tried to make ourselves into someone glorious and all at futile, futile ends. But you noticed us and gave your own son so that we could receive his glory, his honor, and his love. For all that he has is ours. And you have loved us as you love him. And so we pray. As we come to the table. Help us to hope again. That your love is a redeeming love. And that there is no place in our broken lives. That cannot be reclaimed and redeemed. By the power of your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.